You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hey there. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode. I'm excited to share another conversation with one of my former teachers, this time with my former professor, Gautam Dasgupta, a theater professor at Skidmore College. Gautam shares some stories about his winding path through academia. We discuss his belief that genuine passion and love of life trumps academic achievement and success, and he talks about how his childhood growing up in India led to a passion for the arts and the humanities, in spite of pressure to pursue a life in the sciences. If you enjoy this episode and have been enjoying the podcast in general, please take a moment to rate and review Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, which really helps raise our visibility and ensures that other people find the podcast. Also, feel free to pass the podcast along to anyone who might enjoy it or find it interesting. With all that being said, here's my conversation with Gautam. Enjoy! Hey Gautam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. So what I'd like you to do to begin is go back to what I refer to as the first day of school. Um, I want you to think about your first day of teaching, however you might define that. I'm curious about what you remember from that day, what you remember from that experience, um, sort of how it went for you, um, whether it like was a good day, a bad day, all, all that kind of stuff is totally fair game. So I'm curious about what comes to mind for you when you think about the first day of teaching for you. Well, that's going back now 28 years. <laughs> uh, uh, but I'll tell you, I, uh, of course, I was slightly nervous because, especially in my case, since I'd never taught before, I had conducted a doctoral seminar at UCSD prior uh-huh. to my uh, teaching at uh, Skidmore. Uh, but that was years before. I think it was, in the, uh, it was sometime in the 80s. So I joined Skidmore in 1990. And the only thing that I had uh, decided upon before I walked into the classroom was that I would conduct it as a seminar, uh, more than Mm -hmm. just sort of uh, teaching from either a textbook or whatever, that uh, I did have the students read plays because the first course I taught was a course on theater and culture. I think it was Theatre and Culture 1, and uh, which was from the Greeks all the way to the present. But the first day I decided that I would conduct it as a seminar, uh, talking about some productions of Greek plays that I had seen, or that I was very familiar with either the directors or the actors. Because you have to also remember that I used to be a critic in New York. Right, right. So I knew a lot of the practitioners of the craft and uh, and I'd seen many productions worldwide in different countries. And since this was a course on theater and culture, I decided to emphasize both the theatrical and obviously the cultural aspect of the course. And, and I thought it would be great to tell the students about productions that I had seen in various mm-hmm. parts of the world. So whether it was productions in America or in Romania or in France of the same play, I forget which play it was, it may have been Oedipus Rex or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And 
uh, and I brought in to bear upon the class what was uh, what were the differences in terms of uh, the approach to the productions, right? you know, and, yeah. and uh, b- differences that were generated uh, by the cultural disparity of these various uh, productions in different cultures. So that's what I did. And, and that seemed to, because partly most of the students had not seen productions in other cultures or hadn't seen that many productions. I mean, I yeah. had seen prior to that for nearly from 1972 on, I mean, I had been very active in the theatres. Of course, I knew a lot of these um, shows in different parts of the world. Uh, and my job, of course, also entailed because I was the editor and publisher of a journal called Performing Arts Journal in New York. Mm-hmm. So it entailed my being invited, of course, to various festivals around the world where I would see these productions that were either part of the festival or else they were playing in town. So I could bring to bear upon my uh, uh, class lectures or this conversation, basically, that I had yeah. with a student telling them about these various um, uh, differences in approaches to the Greek plays, as opposed to first having them read the Greek plays. And also, this wasn't a course in dramatic literature. I mean, I took it very seriously that it was theatre and culture. So I didn't just sort of analyse Oedipus Rex or analyse whichever play, even when I taught theatre and culture too later on the following semester. You know, I wasn't analysing these plays. Yeah you're doing something different. So even though it was your first time teaching, it seems like you did have like that level of expertise that maybe made you feel a little more confident than you would have if you didn't have that. So would you describe yourself as feeling pretty confident in your ability to teach and to, you know, do what was expected of you in this new position and this new job? Oh, oh yes, I would say uh, totally confident. Uh, partly because, as I told you before, I would go to all these festivals all over the world. But also I was invited to a lot of panels, international theater panels, you know, yeah. film panels, etc. So I, as, as a public speaker, I mean, I was very used to that. And uh, most of these panels, I was either, you know, talking about you know, new American work, because in the 70s, at least, that was the heyday of the American avant-garde. So a lot of people in in uh, Europe were very interested in what was going on with the American avant-garde. People like Bob Wilson, uh, Richard Foreman, Mabu mm-hmm. Mines, Lee Brewer and Mabu Mines, Joanne Acolytus, Richard Schechner, uh, Joe Chaikin, etc. So, uh, so they would always invite me because I had written on them here for both for PAJ and also I was a journalist for uh, Soho Weekly News, a newspaper, weekly newspaper that came out of New York. And so people, of course, knew uh, my name. And so they would invite me to be on various panels. So that mm-hmm. so so that allow, allowed me really to uh, sort of extend that really to the classroom situation. And yeah. it wasn't that big of a leap at all any means yeah yeah so you would say like you walked away from that first day or even like that first week like that first experience with teaching feeling like you could you know you could do this and and be pretty pretty confident about it yeah and also i think that the students were were, were very thankful may partly because i think uh, that they were talking to someone who was there i mean it wasn't yeah it wasn't like other teachers that they had who got all that information from um 
uh, other texts. And I yeah. and so they were sort of regurgitating perhaps what they had read uh, in other uh, critical studies written by other academics elsewhere. In my case, I mean, you know, I could even tell them things that they would never find in other texts because these were yeah. things that uh, uh, I was personally uh, very involved with and had gotten it straight from the horse's mouth. So I could tell them anecdotes yeah. from Bob or from uh, Richard. And I think that the students related to that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I can attest to that for sure. I mean, there's something about, you know, as someone who is in a couple of your classes, there's something about like hearing those stories and you just don't, you don't get that from a textbook. You don't get that yeah. from any other sources. So you do really like that investment and that, that experience really does come through and just give it a, it's a different experience than if they had someone else as a teacher. Yeah, that's, I mean, I'd like to think so. Uh, but, but that also made it very personal, you know, the whole experience. I mean, it wasn't just a teacher talking. I mean, it was someone who was also vested in, I, I mean, as you know, I also acted in a Richard Foreman play, so I could talk to the right. students about what it was like being in a Foreman play, being directed by Foreman, or how Foreman even put his work together, his, his productions yeah. together. And that is not something that you would get from, you know, someone who's, uh, who, uh, you know, so many of the people who'd written, uh, first of all, at that time, there were very few books written on these people because it was so very new. And even now, when I yeah. read some of the stuff that were written by people, they were not there. And so I read these things, not only me, but even some of my colleagues, we read all this stuff written in recent years. And and we just keep beating our head against the wall. We said, what? I mean, this is not at all yeah. what it was like. And, you know, they just didn't, weren't there to get it uh, correct in a way. And yeah. I mean, at times I, I look at some of the stuff today and... Uh, they're, they're talking about a production that had so many actors. And I said, no, it did not have that many actors. Or it did have many <laughs> right. more than what this person claims they were. So, yeah, so you're like fact checking. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So um, I'm curious about the moment when you realized that you wanted to be a teacher, when you wanted to be an educator. I know that you have like a pretty long sort of storied um, experience with like your path to education, your path to teaching. But I'm curious about the moment when you realized that it was something that you wanted to do full time. Um, and when you decided that it's something that you wanted to really put your life into in the way that you have. I think I realized that uh, at Skidmore early on, uh, and I'm not sure why it is, but the culture has changed by the time you guys got here. Mm -hmm. But early on, uh, the kids who were there, were much more adventurous is maybe one way of putting it um, yeah but also maybe the climate was such or the department allowed it or the college allowed it or the zeitgeist was of a certain kind when uh, students were always doing stuff mm -hmm. I, I mean even the other day i was telling students that there was not a night not an evening that went by when the entire campus was buzzing with yeah. uh, things that were being done by the students, by yeah. theater students. And they would, they would do it, I, you know, by, by, uh, 
on the gr campus greens or wherever there was any space or in stairwells or in the elevator. I remember someone did a, a piece in the elevator where we were just going up and down, up and down in the elevator. <laughs> and every time yeah. you walked out and walked back in, there was a whole new scene happening in the elevator. So there was, a, I, I, I don't know uh, what happened to have dampened that spirit on the part of incoming students. I mean, unless it's, I mean, having been there now 28 years, I mean, obviously I've gone through a few different uh, generations of students. Mm -hmm. But the kids who were there have, were born in the 70s, mm -hmm. as opposed to kids. That, I mean, the other day I was shocked that there was a kid who said that he was born in 1991. So that's <laughs> what you have now. So that's even right. after I joined Skidmore. So whether it was the fact that these kids had grown up in the the climate of the 70s, which was a different time in America than it certainly yeah. was in the 80s and the 90s. They were willing to take chances. I think the kids in the 70s, there was a, uh, a lot more chutzpah on the part of students, a kind of a daring do. So I don't know if it was that, but that gave me uh, tremendous joy. I mean, you know, I mean, in fact, they would have me. I mean, I acted in a lot of those shows then. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, today you don't see that at all, where the faculty is actually uh, implicated in some of their uh, their experiments or their antics. Mm -hmm. And and some of them were antics. I mean, some of them, I mean, they were not seriously thought out. They were spur of the moment stuff. That, mm -hmm. but uh, but we were all implicated in 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 uh, the enjoyment, if you will, of theatre. Yeah. And, and that made it a wonderful place to be in. Yeah, yeah. So going back a little bit further, I mean, what, was there a moment when you thought, because you, you, you mentioned that when you were at Skidmore in those early, those early years, it's what really made you excited and you really enjoyed like the adventurous sort of spirit of the students. But what was it that led you to just even consider trying teaching? Uh, I mean, that really has to do more with, it was, in a sense, a business decision more than anything else. In 1990, right. our business was getting awfully big. And so at that point, uh, you know, we decided that we'd outsource it, even though the term was not in vogue then, but around 1990, we sort of outsourced uh, uh, our business to Johns Hopkins University Press because most of the time I found that I would be talking to paper salesmen or print presses who would want our business booksellers book buyers book jobbers mm -hmm. etc because we also went into books so our uh, it wasn't just paj it was it became paj publications so once we did that there was no no need to have an office in new york and i was too young i was then about 40 late to have uh, joined academia but i was still chronological i mean at 40 i thought what am i going to do and i thought that since i'd known so many of these artists and all it would be wonderful to uh, um, share my knowledge or whatever with students. And I knew that the one thing I did not want to do was really teach graduate students. Because mm -hmm. I, as I told you, I had done uh, some doctoral uh, teaching doctoral students at UCSD. And I felt that, you know, at the graduate level, uh, the students were already pretty set in their ways and they could not, I mean, uh, how should I put it? They could not be... Uh, excited about novelty yeah. and all um, and um, uh, they were sort of in a rut or whatever they were working on their dissertations and they knew exactly what they wanted to do and dissertations yeah. in this country are so academic and it's all nitpicking and it's like looking at details and 
yeah. referencing this, referencing that. Whereas I thought that the young students would come to it with a certain innocence. They, uh, and also I thought that they would not have known this kind of work from wherever they were coming from, high schools, etc. So that's when I decided that I'd like to teach at an undergraduate institution. That was that was the only thing I had in mind that I wanted to teach at an undergraduate institution so that I would get students who who with fresh eyes would come to the yeah. subject matter and would not have had any preconceived notions about theater, what theater is, etc. So the f- very first term, you know, we, we, I think the main stage production was a, a play by Peter Weiss. It was being directed by a guest artist whose name I forget now. And so here was a, I, I thought, oh, this is interesting. I mean, it was a German mm-hmm. play and, uh, and uh, 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 wasn't the typical sort of... Uh, plays uh, you know that were uh, you know the, the more uh, sort of off-broadway or off-broadway fair the kind of the easy realistic dramas here was something yeah. that was a fairly adventurous play and I thought huh this is great a play and uh, that uh, at, at Skidmore they would do that kind of work it was before we started doing those kinds of works that already have a, a uh, have had a Broadway run or an off-broadway right, run right which is my sense is that now more and more that's what we do true and tested plays are what we do whereas those mm-hmm. days we were just doing genet and you know pirandellos and chekhovs mm-hmm. which i'm sure other institutions do but we were doing a pretty good um, share of those kinds of plays which i wanted uh, students to be aware of and the yeah. fact that there was a production attached to a course etc that made it a very exciting moment to teach well it it sounds like you were drawn to yeah like what you were saying earlier just like that sense of like adventure and that excitement and it sounds like it's something that you that you found in a lot of ways so it's it's something that you know kept you there now going back a little bit further i'm curious about what you were like as a student and what you were like as a learner You, you can think about it you know in any really at any time that makes sense to start. If you think about your overall trajectory, you can think about like middle school, high school, but I'm curious about, yeah, what you were like as a student and how that's impacted your experience as an educator. Uh, that's a tough one. Because, uh, well, first, let me mention that I did not go to school in this country. I went to school in India. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and in fact, I even went to college in India. I mean, I did graduate mm-hmm. work here, but uh, uh, in India, the... the the school I went to was a very fine school because even though I was I went to school in post-independent India, but when mm-hmm. the British left India and I was uh, 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 I was born uh, two years after India's independence, but when the British left India, the Indian government, of course, nationalized all the schools, most of the schools mm-hmm. in India, but uh, and, and Nehru was the prime minister of India. And Nehru, being Nehru, coming from a very privileged family, he made sure that there were a few schools in India that would still be run under the old British system. So, mm-hmm. so mine was one of those schools which was up in the mountains in India, in the Himalayas. And the school was run very strictly by Irish patrician brothers. And the entire curriculum, we did not even do the Indian school certificate or Indian high school. We did what was then called Senior Cambridge. In fact, mm-hmm. our our uh, tests, uh, our exam papers were always sent back to Cambridge. In fact, my high school graduation certificate is still signed by uh, the person who was then the Chancellor of Cambridge University in England. Oh wow! You know, so so it was um, 
so the, uh, the 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 system was perhaps biased towards mm-hmm. Western literature uh, and right, uh, right. subject matter, but it was still a very very fine education. I mean, I don't regret it. I I only mm-hmm. regret it in that if I'd gone to a uh, high school run by yeah, by uh, uh, Indian educators, then I may have known a bit more about India than I do right. now because that was what was emphasized in these other schools. So there I was a very good student, partly because the teachers were fantastic. And also because it was post-independent India, we had a lot of teachers who were very well known in England who would take Mm. their sabbaticals in India. It was partly a love affair with the colony that they lost. It was partly that. (laughs) But it was also the fact that this my school was at about you know, uh, eight, nine thousand feet above sea level, this town. And so the the climate was fantastic. It was, you know, snow ringed by snow capped peaks and also mm-hmm. the beautiful and the, and, yeah. the, and the aroma of these these mountain conifers and firs and all it was just a beautiful place to be. So then uh, it was it was wonderful being taught by by people who were actually classmates of Bertrand Russell or who were classmates of of Whitehead and all, you know, some major mm-hmm. scientific, uh, you know, philosophical minds. And uh, so it was exciting to be in school. And then after school, yeah. I wanted to go in as a philosophy major. But mm. my father, who was an engineer, wanted me to to go into the sciences. So at first ah, I, yes. did, I did go in for philosophy for a year, but at a university in India, but uh, at the end of the year, the college would have to, uh, you would have to pay exam fees. And of course, in India, you don't work on your own and you're not that independent of your parents. You know, mm-hmm. it's a whole different culture altogether. Yeah. So, of course, the bill was sent to my dad, who saw that I was studying physics and uh, philosophy instead of physics, whereas I had told him <laughs> that I was studying right. physics. <laughs> so he was upset he wouldn't pay the fees. So I had to then finally... And get, he wanted me then to enroll in university where he was living then so that he could keep an eye over me. <laughs> so I went right. to Calcutta, which is where he was then posted. And there I enrolled at university and I went to a, a, in an engineering institute um, in mechanical engineering. And But it was, it was also a time in the 1964 uh, or so, it was a time when Calcutta was a very political city. It still is, but very political with leftist students all over. Mm-hmm. And my university was a hotbed of Marxism. Mm. And so most of the time, we were, the students were always on strike. And so the university gates were closed. And so there were hardly any classes at all. The, the, right. the, the few times that was, was open, I did attend classes, but I wasn't that excited because it wasn't a field that excited me. So right. I would then, and Calcutta is a very intellectual town, uh, so there were, I mean, Calcutta then had hundreds of poetry magazines, hundreds of literary magazines, etc. And the people who mattered in Calcutta, the Calcutta intelligentsia, they only hung around in coffee houses. So I would basically get up in my dorm. Oh, the one deal I struck with my dad was that I wouldn't live at home, um, which was kind of, a, kind of strange because I was living in the same town. But I right. stayed under, in the dormitory, in the hostel, so that I could have some degree of independence. So I would get up in the morning and go to these coffee houses and be there from 10, 11 in the morning till 6, 7 at night. And when I was growing up in Calcutta, Calcutta had 55 art film houses. Wow. It's unimaginable. 55 wow. art film houses. It had so many theaters that were doing very avant-garde work, etc. 
uh, work that would be even much more avant-garde than what I came to in America, much more avant-garde than even off-Broadway or off-off-Broadway theater. So I, I was exposed to that. So I would get up, go there, hang around with artists in these coffee houses. And mm -hmm. then in the evening, I would go and see movies, two or three movies from six to midnight or something, go back to the dorm and then just read. So basically, uh, uh, I, I read enough just before the exams which are all engineering because in India there's nothing like a liberal arts education so when yeah. you're in engineering school that's all I was that's studying what you do. machine yeah. tools plasma heat flow blah 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 stresses yeah. steel stresses etc <laughs> so just before the exam you know I would just sort of study uh, up on all these subjects and I managed to get through and uh, <laughs> and then uh, after and then I did graduate and then I just wanted to get back again to the humanities and I had lots of uncles and aunts who had studied in America and they said the American system is so liberal education wise why don't you try to get here so I did um, I took the GREs and for me after having gone through that senior Cambridge that high school in India and all the GREs were a joke. I mean, it really was. I mean, I thought that, my God, I could have taken the GREs when I was about eight or nine years old. You know, <laughs> right. it was, I mean, I, I was sufficiently prepared to have taken the GREs at that age. So I saw so the GREs I got in, I applied to about six universities in America. And I chose those universities because I had to come in to do my PhD in the science, in engineering. But I chose... Uh, a few universities that also had very good humanities departments because I thought right. I'd come here and I'd switch. Yeah. And But it uh, wasn't that easy. But then I was at, uh, at Connecticut. I finally chose the University of Connecticut because they gave me a very good scholarship, a teaching assistantship and all that. So mm -hmm. I came here and the first week or so I had to teach uh, science kids, engineering kids. Talk about <laughs> That's where I was really nervous. Yeah, <laughs> I wasn't nervous I about the theater, but that I said, what am I going to teach these kids? I mean, you know, they, I'm sure they every single one of them knows a hell of a lot more about the sciences than I do, even though <laughs> right. you know, I, at that time I had an MS in mechanical engineering. And I said, oh, my God, it's going to be a disaster. So I did my class the first Monday and then ran to the English department. They looked at my resume, my undergraduate resume, and it was all the sciences. They said nothing they can do. I, then I went to philosophy, I went to history, geography, psychology. I, I could have been in any field, frankly. The only yeah. reason I'm in the theater was because, and at this point, I think it was the third day of teaching, and then I said, okay, the next day, there's nothing that I could teach them, nothing. And in fact, I think what I taught them, I'm sure, wasn't even kosher. But, anyhow, <laughs> so, right. but then, and so at that point, I was desperate, and I was just going to go back to India. I had my father buy me a round-trip ticket, so I was just going to go back. I, I happened to walk into the theater department because that wasn't really on my hor uh, horizon at all. So I went to the theater department, and there was this wonderful person, Arthur Saxon, who was the theater historian there. And Arthur himself, his parents wanted him to go into the sciences, and he rebelled. But, of course, he was in this country, so it was much easier for him. And then he right. went to Yale, and then he became a major American theater historian. So when I told Arthur my tale of woe, and, uh, <laughs> and of course, I also uh, gave him some of the reviews that I had written in India, film and theater reviews and all. So he looked at me and said, my God, Gautam, you know, 
you know, enough about both Indian, but it's also Western theater. I mean, I knew Beckett, Chenet, you know, all these people, Camus, Sartre, all their works, etc. So he walked over to the chair of the department, theater department, and said, oh, I would love... Um, oh, and I also told him I don't want to go through undergraduate again. I've done that. Mm-hmm. It's, I have a master's in engineering, an MS. So, uh, so he took me and said he, uh, that he would like me to be his research assistant. Oh, my God. And, but the chair said that, okay, we can take you in on a provisional basis for an MFA in theater. But uh, the first semester, it has to be provisional. We have to see how you fare. Mm-hmm. So I said, fine. And I took it, and it was just such a joke because I knew most <laughs> of these plays, etc. Yeah. And I knew more than most of the other graduate students here who were going in for uh, an MFA in theater. So after that, uh, he said, fine. I was brought in as a full-time student mm-hmm. uh, with, with full standing, whatever. And then I did that. And then now with an MFA in theater, I then... Oh, and because I had switched majors, this is the interesting thing, because I had switched majors, immigration was after me because I was on a student visa to come here to do my PhD in engineering. And they thought that I'd entered the country under false pretenses. So then they, so immigration was after me. As long as I had, I was a student, I was fine with immigration and naturalization services. But once I uh, graduated, they gave me a month to leave the country. So then I said, oh, my God, I've got to now figure out another way of being a student. So now with my MFA degree in Connecticut, I moved to the English department, which is where I first wanted to be because it it had a fabulous English department. Fabulous. One of the best English departments in the country. So I went over to the English department. And there I was very lucky that the first person whose office that day was open and I walked in and I knew this gentleman's work. He was a great classicist. His name was Rex Warner. He'd already retired, but he was Professor Emeritus at Connecticut. He was an Englishman, very famous classicist, a Greek classicist, who'd uh, translated uh, mm-hmm. Thucydides' Peloponnesian War and had translated Aeschylus, Sophocles right. and all. So I went up to him and Rex the Warner, who was very British in his ways, asked me, and he call, he would always call his students master, which is the typical British way of addressing students. So he said, Master right. Dasgupta, may I ask you, why do you want to take another graduate degree? And I knew that he, Rex Warner himself, had only, I'm not even sure if he'd even finished his undergraduate, but he was one of the greatest classicists in the world. And so he asked yeah. me, why do you want to take another deg- graduate degree? I, I blurted out, I said, oh, because Professor Warner, immigration will throw me out of the country. He said, that's the best reason I've heard for anyone attending graduate school. <laughs> and he walked me over to the chair of the department and he said, I want Master Dasgupta to be my research assistant. Oh, my God. So then I got an MA in English literature and I took courses in English poetry and Victorian mm-hmm. lit and all that. Uh, no drama in the English department. It was all just typical, you know, the typical mm-hmm. English uh, department fair. And then I got an MA in English. And now with that, I thought, and then after I finished my MA, immigration was again after me because they had my number. <laughs> so then right. I said, okay, now what am I going to do? So then I decided I'd go in for uh, my doctoral work. And at that time, uh, Arthur Saxon from the theater department he had been given a distinguished professorship at the graduate, the doctoral center at CUNY, at C-U-N-Y. Mm-hmm. And 
So I went to Arthur and asked, Arthur, I said, I know that you're leaving Connecticut, you're going to New York to, to be in charge of the dramaturgy section or a theater history and dramaturgy section at the Graduate Center. And I'm thinking of going in for a doctoral work. Arthur said, don't say a word. You are going to be my doctoral assistant. You come with me. <laughs> so Arthur, Arthur then comes to New York and brings me over. Wow. We're with him to New York. So then after that, that was that I knew I was now at least set for a few years. But then I met Barney, who was also in the graduate program at Hunter College. And then we got married. And after that, immigration couldn't touch me. So that was it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so that's you were how you were in the clear. I was in the clear, and that's how I stayed here and worked on my PhD, but did not get it. I did not because by that time I was already writing. I'd already one of the student had written yeah. books, and the doctoral my doctoral advisor it wasn't Arthur, uh, another person, uh, because Arthur by that time had left. By the time I'd finished all my coursework and all, and this person wanted me to you know you have to. You have to have this thing footnoted, that thing footnoted. And I said, but these are things I'd be footnoting myself because I'd written these things right. for the newspaper. <laughs> I said, and I right. just thought it was so silly. And by that time, I knew most of the major artists and scholars in America. And they all told me that because I knew that none of them had PhDs. Uh, Sandy Kaufman, right, right, Susan right, right. Sontag. I knew none of these people had advanced degrees. They were all just well read on their own. And they and I fell in with that group and they said that hey, don't do a PhD. I mean, that's for uh, it didn't quite say that's for idiots, but uh, that's what it sort of amounted to that don't. I mean, you know, just just do your stuff right. and uh, just be passionate about it. Yeah. And that was the best advice I'd gotten. And that was it. Well, and it sounds like that probably played a role in eventually leading you to, you know, to education and, and to being a teacher, right? Because you just found yourself in these positions where you were kind of accidentally, it sounds like, where you were helping out these professors and getting a chance to really demonstrate your own scholarship. And it, it sounds like it really just the path led you to a, a career as a, as a teacher in the, in the yeah, humanities. Yeah, and, and in an odd way, I wanted to be like the people who advised me. I wanted to be that kind of an advisor to my students, Wherever I, right, I, right. I might have ended up, and it happened to be Skidmore, but I I really wanted to be that kind of an advisor, which is not yeah. which is not the typical advisor because the, the the few people I advised at Skidmore, they all left Skidmore. <laughs> they took my advice too hard, right. and they did not graduate. <laughs> right, <laughs> but they accomplished things. The important yes, thing yeah. is that you accomplish stuff. So. I mean, a degree is a degree. I mean, some people are yeah. good at taking exams, some aren't. I mean, yeah, I don't yeah, put yeah. I don't put too much stock in all that. You know? Right, right. Well, because you you're an you know illustration of the fact that you don't have to. You yeah. know that in a lot of ways, um, you can forge your own path and you can do things differently. And there isn't that one way to accomplish this. Yeah, John, I'll tell you something because you know the other uh, podcast that you did with your high school teacher. I was mm -hmm. listening to her, and then when she got into this rubrics, I kept thinking. What, are, what the hell are rubrics? I thought maybe that's an right. American system of teaching. Right. I still don't quite know what yeah. rubrics are. And it's too late for me to find out what yeah. they are. But I was totally sure. I said, sure. Oh, God, maybe I did something totally wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's making you second guess everything. Yeah, but I, I'm absolutely sure that at Skidmore, I don't teach the way others do because I don't use text. Yeah, I don't right. do. I maybe at at college do they also do this rubrics thing? If they do, I have no idea. 
Um, so I'd love to talk a little bit about your impressions of what it looks like when we as educators or we as an education system fail our students. You can think about that in terms of what it looks like when we fail our students as individual teachers in individual classrooms or sort of the system as as a whole. Oh, that's a toughie. That's a tough question. <laughs> yes, yes. Individually, I taught my... Well, let me... First, let me just make it personal. And then, you know, I've had to go and sit in on various classes and uh, of other faculty member because they were either coming off a tenure and I had to write letters of recommendation, mm-hmm. etc. And then at one point, I was also the director of the Asian Studies program at Skidmore. So for a few years. So I had to go and sit in on some yeah. of those classes. And the classes that I was most disappointed in are the ones in which the t- the the teachers just kept talking about what they knew without acknowledging where their students were or what were the interests of the students and to bring the students mm-hmm. up with them. I never spoke down to my students. I, I was willing to give them due credit. I thought that they were mm-hmm. smart. They may not have been right. smart in a typical academic way of being a smart Right, being right. Smarty pants or a smart ass, because you know, for for most teachers, they were coming into teaching right after graduate school, so that experience uh, for them was what they expected their students to be, or at least in that track, as if the, all yeah. these students were also going to go into the. I would tell my students that you know, I don't, I really don't care if you want to be a. Uh, a pizza maker or a plumber or an engineer or a scientist as long as you're good right, at it right i mean right. i i would rather have it have a student of mine make fabulous pizza and go to his pizza uh, <laughs> um, shop every day for yeah. his pizza than i would a mediocre teacher who may know yeah. a few things about this thing that thing etc may know a few things about music but not enough to make it interesting for me to to encourage the friendship, yeah, you know, so so that to me was the most disappointing uh, 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 moments in classrooms when I would go and see these teachers who were absolutely oblivious to interests or were willing to even make concessions to find a hook so that the students would yeah. find a hook and to bring them along, you know. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and th- that to me was the biggest disappointment. Uh, and the best teachers I know. Uh, were, were the ones who just the joy and uh, they encouraged curiosity on the part of students, encouraged them to come along to to climb heights that maybe it surprised them as well, you know. Yeah. Like I know that's uh, it's true of me. It's true of my students. You know, if anyone talks and talks for an hour, there are only a few things that'll that'll register or that'll really sort of hook them. And that they will remember. I mean, you know, I accept that. And and uh, and if I can just do that yeah. for the students, whatever it is, and it doesn't even have to be the same thing for all the students because everyone is coming to the class with a different agenda or a different background, etc. But if if you yeah. get if you can get some even one thing out of out of an eighty-minute class, I mean, even even if uh, you you can't stay totally. You can't concentrate for all those. It's impossible for 80 minutes. Yeah, of course. Yes. You know, it's just, I mean, your mind wanders. I mean, so does mine. I mean, if I go to someone's talk, you know, there's just maybe a few sentences that stand out, but that's enough victory. Yeah. As long as it's that. But I go to certain things where 
the teacher just rants, rambles on and on and on. And you can just see that the students could, uh, they're dutifully listening, but are they, but that's not listening. I mean, you know, the words are flying over their heads. Yeah, it's more passive. It's passive and that that's useless. I mean, there's no sense of being in education if that's, if you're going to just teach them what you, what you only know, and even that you know it secondhand, not that because you have invested yourself in that knowledge. You know, I think students yeah. get very excited if you are invested in that knowledge. That if yeah, you absolutely. if you find it thrilling, I mean, I I still discover things in my classes. If I start talking uh, about things, and suddenly I suddenly hit upon something that I haven't even thought of in the past, even though I've taught this place zillions of times. Because, you know, what happened yesterday, maybe yesterday's sunset was something that I could attach to the play and it be, and the play suddenly became something else in my eyes. Yeah, it like enriches your understanding. Yeah, so something else could have happened that did not happen for the many years that I taught this play, you know. Yeah. And I don't want ever to get to that position. I just don't want, I've never ever taught a single play ever in which I've repeated myself, in which I have not at least added something new from some other experience that I may have had, something I may have read, some poem I may have read, some fiction I may have read, someone I ran into on the street and had a chat with, all of these things. So you have to be open. I mean, the thing is to be open to knowledge and and to be thrilled by and excited by uh, by uh, novelty and by new connections in these new connectivities and all i mean that's what you know makes it worth living i mean otherwise you might as well just fold up and crumple into bed and die (laughs) right (laughs) yeah yeah no absolutely and it makes it like you mentioned earlier it makes it interesting for your students and it makes them invested and it encourages them to live life with that same level of awe and wonder yeah and and also for yourself i mean you know i mean you have to make everything you possess exciting so that you are willing to get up the next morning yeah you know i mean there has yeah, to you're end, absolutely right you know so yeah no that makes sense um i'm i'm curious also about just sort of what what large takeaways you've stumbled onto you know as we think about as we round to the end of of our of our conversation and just in thinking about you kind of being in like the final stages of of your career and as someone who has taught for a long time, I'm curious about like what the large takeaway is about what it means to be like an effective teacher or something that you constantly have to remind yourself of as, as you've been an educator, maybe something that you would communicate to someone who, who is just starting out as a teacher, but what is like the one thing that you just feel like you need to constantly remind yourself in order to like be your best as, as an educator? That you're all, that the students are always open uh, to new experiences, are excited by knowledge in whatever shape, form. Uh, uh, I mean, even I don't expect, and it's been true, that not, I think it's true of practically all teachers, depending on the field, that I'm talking about college at least, say that I know that even though I have most of the students have majored in theater. Mm-hmm very few of them will have a career in the theater. Yeah. You know, and I think that's true in any field, if you're in English literature or whatever, but that's not the purpose of education to make you to to have to find you a job. I mean, it is in a way, yes, but really that's not. The purpose of education is that you prepare, that you open yourself up in such a manner 
that whatever comes your way, you take to that with a passion and you excel in that and you give your best because you'd like to, because that is what fulfills you, that's what completes you as a human being. And yeah. so, so if you can, if you can just have that attitude, I mean, that's about all that I would like to instill in my students. For instance, you know, there's this guy, there's a student of ours who does have a quite a stellar career uh, in uh, in films, John Bernthal, mm -hmm. right? You've heard of yeah. him. Okay, yes. now John yeah. was over on campus some years ago. Maybe you were still there. I forget now. Or some event. I think it was after, but yeah, I do remember him being on yeah. campus. I think it was day, after David Jürgen and, and uh, Alma died, and I think there was a mm -hmm. memorial service, and I think he was in town or whatever. And, you know, and then he walked up to me and said, Karam, I'll never forget. Oh, he said, do you think now that I'm an actor? I said, John, I mean, I, I haven't seen all your movies, but I've seen a few of them. And uh, uh, yes, I mean, uh, uh, he said, you know, I'm, I always think of something you said in class. I said, what? I don't know. He said, you said <laughs> that uh, you, I can only call myself an actor if for the past 10 years I have uh, purposefully with great deliberation and patience and uh, persistence followed the craft of acting. Because he said, you know, because I'm sick and tired of hearing everyone say, oh, I'm an actor. Even, you know, like even at right. Skidmore, they, they say, I'm an actor. You're a student, for God's sake. You're not, at this point, you're <laughs> not an actor. But yeah. you may be interested in acting, but you're not. And, and uh, for in any field, it takes a while to establish yourself or to become comfortable with, uh, with however you've designated your professional life to be. It takes a while. You have to pay your dues. I believe in yeah. that. And I, and John said that you know it's been ten years now since I graduated, over ten years, and I have never veered from that path. Even though there were times when I was, I could not make any money, being an actor, I still took other jobs so that I could continue to act, even if I had to act for free or something. Yeah. And I said absolutely, John. That's the way to do it. And he said that's what he remembered from my class. And I said, hey, right. listen. Okay, good. Other stuff you learn, you know, your, yeah. your your learning does not stop right after you get out of class, you know. Yeah. Uh, but if, if it's just one thing that stayed with you, I'm happy, and, and yeah. I'm pleased. Yeah. No, that's great. It's great when you feel like you have like those those takeaways have been communicated, and that your students are like internalizing them. That's like honestly the greatest reward as as an educator. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Mm. That's awesome. Great. So um, the very last thing I'm going to have you do is uh, I have a little bit of a challenge for you if you are feeling up for a challenge. <laughs> I think I know what. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Eli. So this is this is where you get rewarded for having listened to the podcast uh, before. Um, so what I'm going to ask you to do is capture your essence as an educator, um, sort of pitch yourself as an educator um, to the best of your ability in your own words in 30 seconds. So I have a timer here that I'm going to I'm going to show you. I will let you know when you have 10 seconds left. Um, again, just whatever comes to your mind. There are no right or wrong answers with this. Um, and just capturing your essence to the best of your ability in 30 seconds. Are you, uh, are you ready? Yep. Okay, so I'll count you in. In three, two, one, go. As an educator, I would like to instill in my students a great love of useless knowledge, which is not useless, but knowledge that you can make use of at some future date uh, or that will drive you to other 10 forms of knowledge 
that will fulfill your destiny as a human being. Wow, that's perfect. And you have four seconds to spare. Piece of cake. Awesome. So what I'm going to have you do next is capture your essence as an educator, the exact same thing, but this time do it in 10 seconds. So 10 seconds on the clock, and I will go ahead and count you in in three, two, one, go. Be the best that you can be in life. <laughs> Perfect. I think you might have the record there for the for the quickest for that, that portion of the challenge. Um, great. So now what I want you to do is capture your essence as an educator to the best of your ability using just one word. Curiosity. That's perfect. I love it. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with oh, me, Gautam. Um, I really, really appreciate you taking the time and, and, and uh, putting so much thought into capturing you as, as a teacher and, and just talking through education with me. Um, I really enjoy taking your classes in, in college, and uh, I've had a couple teachers um, of my own on the podcast so far, but you are the first uh, college professor of mine that I've had on the podcast, so I was really happy to sort of cross that, that threshold. I'm very glad to have you as a student, and, and I'm so glad that you're doing well, and, uh, and it's going well so far. You're enjoying yes, it? Yes, yes. Yes, I am. I am. Yeah, I know. And, and what, grade, what grade do you teach, John? How old are so you? So I teach high school. So I do 9th, 10th, and uh, 12th grade currently. So I see. kind of a different different side of the, of the teaching experience. But uh, it's been awesome to be able to sort of see the commonalities just in listening to you and, and kind of, you know, tying it to my own experiences. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. All right. Thanks so much for joining me, Gautam. I really appreciate it. Take care. You're welcome. My thanks to Gautam for taking the time to speak with me. We're off next week for Thanksgiving break, but we'll be back the week after with a new episode. I hope everyone has a wonderful Thanksgiving, and if you're able, do me a favor and reach out to a former or current teacher and let them know that you appreciate them. I know I'm thankful that you took the time to listen. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Moeller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join me next time for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.